If you would, please take your Bibles and once again turn with me to the book of Judges. We continue our exposition of the book of Judges as we look at chapter 11. Judges chapter 11. <clears throat> Follow along with me in your Bibles. I'm going to read verses 1 through 11, and then I'm going to read verses 29 through 40. Now Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty man of valor, but he was the son of a harlot. And Gilead begot Jephthah. Gilead's wife bore sons, and when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall have no inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and dwelt in the land of Tob, and worthless men banded together with Jephthah and went out raiding with him. It came to pass after a time that the people of Ammon made war against Israel. And so it was, when the people of Ammon made war against Israel, that the elders of Gilead went to Jephthah from the land of Tob. Then they said to Jephthah, Come and be our commander, that we may fight against the people of Ammon. So Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, Did you not hate me and expel me from my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you are in distress? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, That is why we have turned again to you now, that you may go with us and fight against the people of Ammon and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. So Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, If you take me back home to fight against the people of Ammon, and the Lord delivers them to me, shall I be your head? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, The Lord will be a witness between us if we do not do according to your words. Then Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and commander over them. And Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord in Mizpah. Now turn to verse 29. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah. And he passed through Gilead and Manasseh, and passed through Mizpah and Gilead, and from Mizpah of Gilead, he advanced toward the people of Ammon. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will indeed deliver the people of Ammon into my hands, then it will be that whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the people of Ammon shall surely be the Lord's, and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. So Jephthah advanced towards the people of Ammon to fight against them, and the Lord delivered them into his hands. And he defeated them from Arawar as far as Minith, twenty cities, and to Abel Keramim with a very great slaughter. Thus the people of Ammon were subdued before the children of Israel. When Jephthah came to his house at Mizpah, there was his daughter coming out to meet him with timbrels and dancing. And she was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And it came to pass when he saw her that he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low. You are among those who trouble me, for I have given my word to the Lord that I cannot go back on it. So she said to him, My father, if you have given your word to the Lord, do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth. Because the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the people of Ammon 
When she said to her father, Let this thing be done for me. Let me alone for two months, that I may go and wander on the mountains and bewail my virginity, my friends and I. So he said, Go. And he sent her away for two months, and she went with her friends and bewailed her virginity on the mountains. And it was at the end of two months that she returned to her father, and he carried out his vow with her, which he had vowed. She knew no man. And it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went four days each year to lament the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite. The book of Judges is turning out to be the perfect content to preach on at this time. Uh, Remember that this is a time in Israel's history, this period of nearly 400 years, where the people of God are continuously in times of hardship, continuously in times of distress, and continuously in positions of weakness. Time and time again, we see the raw, innate, sinful, basic desires of humanity come out and cause havoc here. Time and again, we see the basic understanding of sinfulness come out and cause hardship. We see how people respond in the face of panic, in the face of oppression, when they are not rooted And when they are not firmly planted in the Word of God, we see a constant ignorance and misunderstanding of God throughout this whole book. And as a matter of fact, I've talked about that downward spiral. It only seems to get worse through the book. Instead of people clamoring for the Word of Truth, the written, sure, objective revelation of God in His Word people, unfortunately, have been turning to foolish religion. Fake, made-up, man-centered understandings of God and of spirituality. Religion, in the terms of a man-made religion, always takes our own fears, our own desires, our own personalities, our own understanding, and morphs it into some type of God, or some type of of deific understanding, or some type of spirituality. It's after our own understanding, it's after our own image. Foolish religion asks the question, what must God be like? What is God like? And it forms an understanding of God based on one's own heart, one's own desires, and one's own, uh, one's own vision. What makes sense to me? And then, of course, you see the struggle and hardship of the consequences of that, which make things even worse. Because you begin with foolishness without foundation. And you end in a place that is even darker than where you began. I have at the top of your outline that's below this video, Sanctify them through thy truth, thy word is truth. I wrote on that in a devotional the other day. Thy word is truth, and only in the word of God, which is truth, will we ever be sanctified, will we ever be set apart, will we ever be made whole, will we ever have understanding, will we ever have knowledge, will we ever have true faith, and will we ever have eternal life and eternal rest and eternal confidence in God's steadfast truth, not foolish religion. 
With chapter 11 now in Judges, we are introduced to Jephthah after the events of chapter 10. If you remember back to chapter 10, we see that God sets up the deliverance now for the people. We saw that they finally did come to a sincere repentance, where they go before the Lord and they say, do whatever seems right, only deliver us. That was a good attitude towards God. It's a shame that it doesn't last very long, and it's a shame that it doesn't pervade into every other aspect of their understanding towards God. Jephthah, as a judge, as a tribal leader, Jephthah the Gileadite, is introduced to us once again as a mixed bag, as a complicated human being, just like we've seen before with other judges. He's complicated, but in his, in his complication, in his mixed bag of humanity, he's someone we all relate to very well. Remind you again, don't look at these people in Scripture and say, oh, how horrible, how could they do that? We look at these people in Scripture and we essentially are holding a mirror up to ourselves because they are subject to the same temptations, the same weaknesses, and the same humanity that we find ourselves in. So here we look at Jephthah, the measure of a man. Let's analyze what we know about Jephthah a little bit. First of all, he comes across... Overall, taking the whole narrative that we have here in chapter 11, we see a sense of insecurity amongst Jephthah. The first thing we're told about him is that he was a mighty man of valor, meaning he had proven himself as one who gets things done with good results. Someone who people knew was a good fighter, good active person. Someone who knows how to deal with a situation. But we're also told about his background. We're told that he's the son of a strange woman or the son of a harlot. And we're told that because of that, he had to deal with a tremendous amount of prejudice, a tremendous amount of bullying and neglect. His family rejects him. His brothers reject him. You're the illegitimate one. You're not part of our family. We're not like you. You're not like us. Go away. We want nothing of you. And you could be sure that he was raised in a pretty horrible situation because of who he was, because where he came from, which was no fault of his own. You want to talk about prejudice? You want to talk about judgment? You want to talk about bullying? Jephthah knew that. And of course we know that that shapes everyone's personality when they go through that. It shapes how you encounter things, how you see life, and how you act. And it's going to have a strong approach. It's going to have a strong influence on Jephthah and his approach to life and understanding of actions, as well as his approach to an understanding of God. Remember, when your family rejects you, and they're the ones who are supposed to love you unconditionally, that is, without a doubt, going to influence how you view God Almighty even though that influence is a wrong one. So we see an insecurity in Jephthah because of his background and his upbringing, despite him being a mighty man. But the other thing we see about Jephthah is that he is a man of faith. God himself is not one who judges based on where you come from. God is someone who really does love you unconditionally. And despite Jephthah's misgivings and despite Jephthah's faults, God is going to use Jephthah. God is not a respecter of persons. God doesn't say, oh, you're better, you come from a better background, or you've acted better in the past, therefore you're mine, I love you more. God doesn't do that. 
God says, you're mine because I said so. And there's no reason. End of story. Grace. Unconditional. Unmerited. Favor of God. No favoritism. And so God does give Jephthah a faith. Though that faith may not be full, and that faith may not be entirely based on every word of the living God, he is a man of faith nonetheless. Jephthah did not have uh, unconditional love and grace preached to him, as much as he should have. We can imagine, extrapolate from this, that instead of hearing salvation by grace, instead of hearing what was told about Abraham, that he believed God and it was counted to him to righteousness, instead of told about the covenant of God where he will be the God and you shall be my people till the end of days, amen. No, he is unfortunately always put in a situation where he has to somehow perform. But Jephthah, we see, did respect God nonetheless. He respected the Lord. In verse 9, when the elders ask him to be uh, the leader, the commander, the one in charge, he asks this question, shall I be your head? Now we look at that and say, what's he saying there? Is he asking? Is he bargaining? Is he saying, look, I'll be your head if you, I'll, if you do, I'll do this for you if you make me your head? Slightly. But really, he's actually kind of chiding them by saying, only the Lord is supposed to be your head. Only the Lord is supposed to be in charge. Only the Lord is supposed to be your commander. Only the Lord is supposed to be your governor. And only the Lord is supposed to be your strength and your guide. And only the Lord is supposed to be the one you have your faith in. So we see a bit from Jephthah that he grasps that. He has enough of sense to understand that. Later in his dealings with the Ammonites in the section of this chapter that I did not read, that I recommend you go through because it is important to the full extent of the narrative, in his dealings with the Ammonites, he shows a reverence for God's power and ability and plan. Jephthah does have faith. And when we're talking about a leader, and when we're talking about someone who is used of God, and when we're talking about anyone who seeks the truth, who wants to be sanctified by the truth, and who wants to abandon uh, a false and phony religion, faith is important. A faith in the facts of God's truth. Another thing we observe and we see about Jephthah is that he is a man of knowledge. Knowledge about the history of of Israel. This again goes to the passage, the section of the passage that I did not read at the beginning of this. In verses 12 through 28, he explains the conflict that he's dealing with, dealing uh, with, with the Ammonites. Uh, he goes back and he shows that he has an understanding of the history of 300 years before. And you can read about some of this in the book of Numbers. In his diplomacy, we see that the problem is something that he grasps, and he grasps the situation. He's not an idiot. He's not a fool completely. He's been taught about Israel and about its history. And all the more, this should fuel his faith, and all the more, this should fuel his understanding, and all the more, this should help with his insecurity. Because we see him as a man of knowledge... It almost gives an even less of an excuse for the mistakes that we see in his life. Knowledge of God is important to keep us steadfast, 
to keep us firm, to keep our faith secure, and to keep us built up. Knowledge of his word is important. Recently, somebody was mocking the church of God, and they commented that uh, the church is nothing but a book club where almost no one has actually read the book. First of all, shame on the church for ever giving the impression to anyone that it is just a book club. And unfortunately, when church is shown to be light and, and superficial and social, it can have the air and the attitude of a book club. Even more shame for someone to be able to comment that most people haven't read the book. Shame on Christians for not knowing their Bible, for not knowing the living God, and for not being able to give an answer to everyone who asks of the reason that is in them. Shame on any church that doesn't teach the right way it should. Jephthah had a knowledge of history and a knowledge of the working of God to an extent. If he had even more knowledge, it would have prevented him from a mistake down the road. Knowledge of God is important. In verse 29, we are told that the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah. Now, remember, this means, in an Old Testament context, that he had the special presence of God to govern him and accomplish things that were out of the normal function of natural law. When the Spirit of God comes upon someone in the Old Testament, anyone who has faith has already has the Spirit of God in, e in order to even believe in God. But when the Spirit of God comes upon someone in the Old Testament in this way, it is always a display of some way that God enables them to function outside the normal means of natural law. And so, God has his way in using Jephthah here to accomplish something great and something mighty. Now, the Spirit of the, Lord, of, of the Lord is upon Jephthah, but how much that these people in Israel appreciated this is very hard to say. Because once again, we find ourselves in a period of Israel's history where their spiritual health as a whole was very poor, and the Gileadites are no exception. The spiritual health of God's people uh, is very low in a grade system here. Chapter 10, we see them as a very, in a very materialistic state of desire. We want deliverance. We want political deliverance. We want material deliverance. That's our heart. That's our focus. That's our interest. Comfort, ease, now, in this life, here. One that we can touch, one that we can see, one that we can see, that can feel. We see materialism in their poor spiritual state. But we also see now with chapter 11, something new. You remember all the other judges, we have the phrase, and God raised up. God raised up so-and-so. Well, God, it never says that God raised up Jephthah. We have a group of people going to Jephthah and saying, you, you're the one, rule over us. You, you're the one, you should be the commander. You, you're the one. In their poor spiritual state, instead of bowing before the Lord, instead of seeking his face, instead of seeking his guidance, instead of seeking his truth and his word, they decide that they're going to make the decision and they're not going to wait around for God. Jephthah is chosen by the people. And that shows their impatience and their, their poor spiritual state and a lack of a desire for the Lord to reveal. All the more... We should learn from this to seek his truth in dark times rather than jump 
at our own personal decision of what is good for us and what we need and who will save us and what will make our lives better. All the more, we should be constant in prayer. We should be constant in direction from the Word of God alone for wisdom and discernment rather than saying this, this will do it because it's a quick fix or because it seems appropriate in the moment or it'll make me feel better for this hour. Seek the Lord and don't fall into poor spiritual health like the people of God. When God's truth is truly sought and knowledge and understanding of it lead one to an acceptance of the providence of God and a confidence in His will. There is a deep understanding through all of Scripture, especially even in Judges, that despite the mistakes, despite the downward spiral, God is in all that comes to pass. And a people of God, instead of panicking, instead of jumping to conclusions, need to understand that God is at work, that God is alive, and that God is real, and that God is applying. And when we seek his truth, and are sanctified by his truth, instead of turning to the foolish religion of self, we find that we can have a confidence in his, in his will. Proverbs chapter 31, verse 25, is one that is often quoted and often celebrated. And it's about the, uh, the woman after God's own heart, the wise woman of Proverbs. It says, Strength and honor are her clothing, and she shall rejoice in the time to come. Some translations will say, and she shall laugh in the time to come, or laugh at the time to come. Now, I shared some of that in devotion in, de, in the devotional paragraphs yesterday with you, but have you ever thought about that? Why is she laughing at what is to come? Does she know what's to come? No. She has no idea what's to come. But she knows that God is in what is to come, and that that is enough to rejoice in. Whether it's good or whether it's bad, I can rejoice in the will of God because I have a confidence that He is sovereign. Here in verses 22 and 23, we see an understanding of Jephthah that these things were done by God in the past and were all of His will. The whole conflict with the Ammonites that occurred in Israel's history is over and done and was by the Lord's will. When we examine things that have gone on in our lives, and when we examine the past, why should we ever obsess over this? Why should we ever get bitter over this? Why are we unsatisfied with God in what we cannot control and what is actually over and done with? Why do we go back to history and get angry over what has happened instead of looking to the Lord, looking to the future, and rejoicing in Him because He is ahead? God is in all that comes to pass, and we can either respond in anger or bitterness or turn to Him in wisdom and in truth and be sanctified by that truth. We need to be satisfied with God alone. Pagan religion is unlike the true God. And the Ammonites here did not have a God who was sovereign. We see in the passage, that, again, that I did not read, in the verses that I did not read, we see a reference here to their god, Chemosh, in verse 24. Now, that's a god who is used to justify actions and power play. 
Their God, unfortunately, as a God that does not exist, is one that they use. And unfortunately, Israel, in its poor spiritual health, was falling victim to this same way of thinking with the one true God. When we start to have our own agenda, and we often look for ways to justify our own acts and our own agenda, be sure that we have left Christianity and we have entered paganism. When we start to use God as a mascot, and we say, God knows me and he understands and he'll let me do what I want because he knows what I've gone through, we have left Christianity and we've entered paganism. When we start to say, this must be God's way, when we start to say, God must be on my side, or God must be this way, or this is something that God must find valuable, without consulting his word, we have left Christianity and entered paganism. You don't get to manipulate God. You don't get to make him form to you. You break yourself and form to him. And all the examples of history show us that a pagan understanding of God brings more hardship and more terror than would have come under any natural circumstance, including in a fallen world. You can look at something like the Crusades, where an assumption was made about God of what he must want. And really, it was political agenda that they morphed and used God for. Unfortunately, we still live in a world where people use God for their own political agenda, where people use God for their own means and their own advancement. Don't get caught up in that. Don't get caught up in a pagan understanding of God where he is your mascot and you get to use him. That's foolish religion. That's fake. And unfortunately, Jephthah's culture and upbringing and personality all contribute to having that as part of his, his understanding of God. There are elements of Jephthah which are good and there are elements of Jephthah which are foolish. And unfortunately, he misunderstands his relationship with God. And we see that the climax of this chapter exposes that to us. Despite his faith, despite his knowledge, and despite the Spirit of God being upon him, we see that he, re- he, re- he goes and, and rests in religion instead of relationship. He turns to works instead of grace. And he follows up a situation. When he goes into battle, he makes a vow. He makes a vow that he doesn't think about. And he makes a vow that was unnecessary. And he makes a vow that really has no purpose. He turns to works and religion. Now, vows are not something that God ever requires or asks for of his people. They are not part of salvation. Solomon says in Ecclesiastes that it is better for one never to vow any vow than to vow and then not be able to do it. Now, we may make vows of service. 
I had to make vows when I was ordained, and they are vows of service. We may make temporary vows. We see in the New Testament that Paul had taken a vow for a certain amount of time for certain things. God may use certain, uh, certain vows in certain ways, and God may use your mistakes in certain ways. But most vows that people make are unbiblical and are stupid, especially vows that bargain with God. God, I will do this if you only do this. God, I vow to give up this if you will only do this. There is no place in Scripture that tells us, that tells us to work that way. We may see people in their ignorance do that, and then we may see God save them despite their ignorance, and we may see that God does use that to show them that he is real. But he never says, this is how you have relationship with me. When you say you'll do this, then I will do this for you. That's not grace, that's not the gospel, that's not the word of truth, that's not the revelation of God. And Jephthah's vow was rash, was unthought out, and was indeed pagan. When he says, whoever or whatever comes out, I will offer to you. He really isn't being specific. He is actually saying whatever or whoever. He's probably thinking it's an animal, but he doesn't get specific enough to leave it to just an animal. He opens the door to it being a person. Offering that he makes, that he makes in his vow, offerings are something that are meant to display and apply the reality of dependence on God. They are not a bargaining chip. They are not an insurance premium. Offerings are meant for us to say, look, God, everything I have is yours. Everything I need, I depend on you for. You can give, you can take away, it's yours. I am going to show my dependence on you by giving back to you what is yours. We do that in our offerings of money. We do that in our offerings of service. And we do that by understanding that our life belongs to God. But Jephthah, unfortunately, uses an offering here as a payment plan. And that, again, is foolish religion. And that is false. And, never, and even beyond that, human sacrifice was forbidden in the law of God. Forbidden. And a law, and, 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 any, and a thing that is forbidden in a vow makes that vow null and void. Jephthah had every ability to say that this vow is contrary to the word of God, and I cannot fulfill it. Because human sacrifice is worse than me giving up my vow. But unfortunately, we see that his religion, his foolish religion, gets the best of him. Now, there's controversy over this because we see that Jephthah has a knowledge of Israel's history and has a knowledge of Israel's background. Many people say that uh, the language here is unclear and perhaps he just offered up his daughter to perpetual virginity, which means he would not have had descendants, and which means she would not have married, which was something of a loss and something of a shame and something of a sacrifice in those days, in that culture, in that mentality. And that is a possibility. 
But the stronger language seems to be that he bull and pig-headedly moved forward with his rash and stupid vow and went forward with sacrificing his daughter, which was illegal in the eyes of God. When we get caught up in foolish religion, and we morph God into what we think he is, and we think of religion rather than relationship, we start to do these ridiculous and evil things. And we start to do it in the name of God. And we find ourselves in a pit, and we find ourselves in a place of darkness, and we find ourselves in a place of punishment and despair. Don't do that. Seek the word of truth. Seek God's word. Use and measure scripture by scripture. Don't jump to conclusions with a passage unless it's weighed in light of everything God says in all of his word. Because what is true and what is absolute about the word of truth and what is not foolish religion is that God has offered one final covenant and one final sufficient offering for everything. And it is not up to us to ever have to appease God, to ever have to pay for sin, to ever have to show to him, to ever have to prove to him, to ever have to perform for him, and to ever have to enter into some type of man-made humanistic pagan religion. When we are saturated with the word of truth, then we have built up an immunity to false religion and to performance and to works instead of grace. God made a covenantal vow forever himself. He said he swore by himself. And he gave one offering forever, the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross, the full atoning sacrifice, the end of all offerings and sacrifices that ever had any understanding of payment, that ever had any understanding of redemption, that ever had any understanding of effectiveness in appeasing God. The one sacrifice, the one offering, the one Lamb of God that was ever given finally, fully, totally Fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews tells us that he sat down at the right hand of God, that it was done, that it was finished, that he's resting, that it's over, that he's ruling, that he's reigning. It is finished, he says on the cross. No more. You don't ever have to do anything like this. You don't ever have to ever try and appease God. You don't ever have to ever try and prove yourself. Give your insecurity to Christ and make him your full security. Laugh at whatever comes because Christ has overcome it already as he has overcome the world. This is the covenant of grace. This is the majestic, marvelous, wonderful, matchless grace that we embrace and that we sing about. And because of that grace and because of that good news, in truth, being sanctified by truth, being built up in truth, there is no fear no wonder the future is the Lord's. Foolish religion is dangerous. But the truth of the Bible is only good and only helpful and only sanctifying. It is, the, it is eternally glorious in its grace-filled rest. Abandon your own way. Don't lean on unto your own understanding. Take on the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe in him. Be sanctified by the truth, for only the Lord's word and it alone is the truth. Embrace the Logos, the word, the Christ. Let's pray. Lord, protect us from foolish religion. Protect us from a works-based understanding of you.
and fill us with the sanctifying truth of your word, the good news of the grace-filled gospel, the ultimate covenantal vow that you made, and the one final atoning sacrifice of Christ. May we never fall into the darkness that Jephthah fell into. May we never be rash in our assumption of you, our understanding of you, or our approach to life. But may we have a faith, a knowledge, a trust, a spirit, and a sanctification that comes from you that goes with us and helps us to live in dependence on you. We trust your sovereignty, we trust your grace, and we rejoice in the future. For the future is yours, and in Christ the future is ours through him who loved us. Bless us and apply this to us, and may we take it seriously in all that we go through. For we ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.